Welcome to Food and Wine with Chef Jamie Gwen. Celebrate food and life by learning about the culinary scene around the world. Speaking with chefs, artists and food makers, farmers, authors and tastemakers who are passionate about everything delicious. A very good weekend to you food lovers. Chef Jamie Gwen in your radio. If you have a taste for life, well then this is your show. I have mouth-watering radio commentary on everything delicious every weekend. And the greatest culinary thinkers, authors, and experts are highlighted each show. Plus, I cover health and wellness, travel, tech, wine, mixology, and more because it is my goal to feed your soul. This is your destination for delicious conversation. So be sure to listen in for great ideas, everything from cooking with kids to vegetarian options, cultivating your delectable dishes, where to travel to, where to eat, oh, with health experts and fitness experts along the way to keep us well. And there is wine knowledge galore, along with trend-setting news and product development. So, The best thing about this show is that there's no reservations needed. I will meet you here for fabulous food in your radio. And if you happen to have missed a show, you can find my tasty podcasts on iTunes listed under Food and Wine with Chef Jamie Gwen. My daily dish, by the way, is posted on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Chef Jamie Gwen. So I like to kick off this show with a tutorial of sorts to make you the best cook you know. And there's something about spring that conjures up the idea of risotto for me. I happen to love risotto. It's just that wonderful, comforting deliciousness that gets to me. And I think about it during the winter because it's warming, but there's something about spring. Maybe it's the new, fresh, young asparagus that come into season. And asparagus and mushroom risotto is one of my favorites. So in order to make you a risotto connoisseur, I have my best tips to share. Risotto is a traditional Italian dish, of course, one of the most common ways of cooking rice in Italy, actually. It originated in northern Italy, where rice patties are abundant. And it's one of the pillars of Milanese cuisine. Um, And it really is one of my favorite ways to impress guests. Now, I have chef's tips to prove to you that risotto is simple and fun. So keep listening, okay? Risottos always make a nice vegetarian course as far as I'm concerned, especially if you're really tiring of the pasta routine. You can always try the traditional Italian risotto alla milanese, which is made with chicken or beef stock and saffron. It's traditionally served during the colder months, like with osobuco. So next time you're in Italy in the winter don't miss it. Another one of my favorites is a risotto made with red wine that is traditionally called risotto al barolo, although I make risotto al chianti, Uh, but there are thousands of variations that exist and the possibilities for flavors and additions are endless. But let's start at the beginning. When it comes to making great risotto, one must know the best rice to buy. So there are three popular grains of risotto rice. The first is arborio. 
It's the most well-known. Um, it's large, a little bit larger than the other two choices options that I'll give you. It's rounded and it has a, a lovely creamy texture. Then there is um, Carnaroli. It is a, a longer grain that tends to hold its shape well, even when it's completely cooked. So this is a good choice if you find your risotto always turning a little bit mushy. That's Carnaroli. And then my favorite, which is now readily available in the U.S., but hasn't always been, is Violone Nano. And I think it has the creamiest, smoothest texture of all. So if you really want to show off with risotto, Violone Nano is the best way. Now, there are lots of choices when it comes to broth or stock or liquids, and that's the next step after you've chosen the best rice. Um, Almost all risotti, yes, isn't that fabulous? That's the plural for risotto. That's great dinner party conversation. All risotti are made from the same basic procedure, just a minor variation. But first and foremost, when you're uh, making risotto, you begin by heating the liquid in a small sauce pot sometimes not so small, until just simmering. I happened to a few weeks back, um, paid it forward and uh, given back uh, for philanthropy, charity, by uh, making risotti, risotti of, uh, for 50 of my closest friends. Yes, I made a, a Parmesan Chardonnay risotto uh, for 50 people and spread it out on a big, huge wood board and let everybody um, take themselves. It was like interactive risotto 101. I taught how to make it, topped it with a medley of dried and fresh sautéed mushrooms. And if I may say myself, it was really a hit. Absolutely delicious. And there's something wonderful to me about the process of risotto that gathers people together. That last few minutes in the kitchen, stirring, sipping Chardonnay, uh, albeit I will give you a great restaurant tip coming up in just a moment though, that risotto does not have to be difficult to make and that you can actually sort of cut the process in half, but stay tuned. So you heat the liquid in a, a pot. And because the secret to great creamy risotto is adding hot liquid slowly and stirring until almost all that liquid has been absorbed. Now I saute shallot in a mixture of olive oil and a little bit of butter because I like the mouthfeel, but the smoking point, the higher heat of the olive oil is what I'm going for as well. And then I add the rice and I saute until it's well coated and it starts to smell toasty because what you want is those kernels to be well coated and sort of golden on the outside. You get that lovely flavor complement to the creaminess of the risotto there. Now, mushrooms or pumpkin during the winter might go in here before you start adding the liquid. But first the wine. I always add either from my glass of white wine or I'll open a bottle or maybe I have one open. I'll always deglaze with some white wine, usually the red wine risotto recipe to come. Um, and I scrape up the fond or the caramelized bits on the bottom of the pan because I think they add tremendous flavor. Now, I am not of the chef's mindset, um, like many in Italy whom I respect, that the risotto has to be pure white. I'm fine with it being creamy, neutral, brownish, because to me, 
If you're using the liquid that you soaked the dried mushrooms in, let's say, as part of the liquid that you're adding into the risotto, well, then you have fabulous flavor. Now you start adding that hot liquid after the white wine has almost simmered away and you do it ladle by ladle, one at a time, stirring until the liquid continues to get absorbed by the grains of rice, thus creating that wonderful creamy texture we love about risotto. And when it reaches the al dente stage or just a little bit past, still toothsome to the bite, but tender, I like to add copious amounts of Parmesan or preferably Grano Padano cheese. And um, I always finish with a couple of tablespoons of unsalted butter. Uh, That's another great restaurant secret. And then I adjust the seasoning. I've salted and peppered, by the way, all the way through from the start of those sautéed shallots. Um, And then, of course, you dig in. Now, as I mentioned, a couple of restaurant secrets and professional chef tips here. If you are using dried mushrooms, you always want to use that soaking liquid in your risotto. And I recommend that you strain it to take out any of the uh, graininess. It tends um, to often have a little bit of grit. Now, you also could consider other liquids. And like I alluded to earlier, uh, risotto al Chianti, which I love, is a combination of adding uh, Chianti wine mixed with chicken broth. And the risotto turns out this beautiful, uh, hued, rich pink color that is just gorgeous. Talk about uh, impressing guests and being a culinary hero. I'd love to know what kind of risotto you are making this season. Email me and I'll share my best tips, of course, as well. Jamie, J-A-M-I-E at chefjamie.com will get you to me. And you will find a bevy of risotto recipes, by the way, posted at chefjamie.com. I even make risotto in the pressure cooker. Oh, and I make a farro risotto that's quick and easy from cooked farro that I absolutely love. So check it out, chefjamie.com. And do not touch your dial. Oh, because there is so much more delicious conversation coming up. We are Cast Iron Cooking with author Daniel Shumsky right after this break. And before the end of the hour... Jen Siegel stops by, the blogger of Once Upon a Chef, to share her spring favorites. I'm Chef Jamie Gwen in your radio, and there's lots more fabulous food right after this. If food is your fetish, I am supplying the tools. Chef Jamie Gwen in your radio. Today we're discovering a whole new world of cast iron cooking. There is no waffling around here because the new book release from Daniel Shumsky, whose out-of-the-box food-loving sensibility made Will It Waffle, his first cookbook, a worldwide success, comes Will It Skillet. There are over 50 surprising, delicious, and very ingenious recipes for your cast iron pans. His one pan ideas will make your cast iron skillet a kitchen workhorse. And so Daniel Shumsky is here to dish. I'm glad to have you back. Hi, Daniel. Hi, it's so good to be with you. Well, congratulations. Another fabulous book under your... 
under your wing there. Thank you. Yes. Um, okay, let's talk cast iron skillets because you yes. definitely encouraged us to embrace our waffle iron. And now I feel like we're sort of going back to our roots. I've always loved cast iron skillets. I will say, I mean, I love the ones that are well seasoned and passed down by generation, but you find it the most indestructible pan ever. Yeah, I think one of the great things about cast iron is well, there are a couple things. So, you know, it's durability, right? So, like you said, it's practically indestructible. It's, uh, it's super versatile, and I'm sure we'll talk more about that. But I, I also love the fact that it's a really traditional piece of cookware that still really has a place in the modern kitchen. Yes, I have to agree with you. Uh, there is something to be said for, uh, you know, the, the trends and what comes and goes, but that the tried and true is always there. So you pull out your cast iron skillet that let's say you haven't been using, or maybe you're purchasing a new one, which by the way, they've come down in cost tremendously, but how do you care for a cast iron skillet in your opinion? Great question. So, and I talk a lot about that in the book. And so one of the things um, to know, I think is, you know, on some basic level, don't run it through the dishwasher. Don't do that. Thank you. Um, <laughs> but the other thing to know is that uh, you want to always store your cast iron skillet dry and probably with a little, a very fine, very thin film of cooking oil on it to, to send off rust. But other than that, I think that um, there's a lot of mythology uh, that surrounds cast iron about how you have to handle it with kid gloves. And I, I don't really think that's true. I, I think um, with a little bit of, say, kosher salt to scrub out some of the stuck-on bits, and then you can wash that out with warm water and then, again, put a, a fine layer of uh, cooking oil on it, and you're good to go. And as long as you do keep them dry as you said, and I think well-seasoned, they will last mm -hmm. generations. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I hear from a lot of people who have skillets that have truly, like you said, been in their families for generations, and um, that's a beautiful thing. No, no doubt. Those are the best. Okay, so you toast in your cast iron skillet, you bake in it, you roast in it, but let's talk toast first. You don't own a toaster, okay. I heard? I don't own a toaster. Uh, I do make toast occasionally, but if I make it, I make it in the skillet, and I like to make it with uh, some, I, I heat up some extra virgin olive oil uh, in the skillet and then press the bread against it so that the bread gets a nice, oily, golden brown uh, crust on it at the same time as it toasts. There's something to be said for the crust that you get in a cast iron skillet, but you toast spices as well before I move on to recipes. You know, I've always toasted spices in a, a simple saute pan. I really never thought to take out my cast iron skillet, but there is something about the heat conduction that I imagine would really make for a well-toasted through and through cumin seed, let's say. Yeah, exactly. I think, uh, I think the heat properties of cast iron are ideal for something like that. And so the, the heat retention uh, is, is really your friend there. Let's talk about heat retention. I love the idea of using a cast iron skillet, as you suggest, to keep things hot at the table. You make a spinach feta dip. That looks really delicious. I almost wanted to lick the page of your cookbook. <laughs> I did. Yeah, so the spinach feta dip. <laughs> the spinach feta dip is, is fun because, you know, you, you can take it out of the oven and it's still hot and it's being hot for, for quite a while as, as you have it on the table. And you can, you know, put a little trivet under the under the skillet to protect the table from the heat, and um, but, but, but you're good to go. You, you don't need a, a chafing dish or anything, let's say, you know? Right, and the dip stays hot all throughout the game, all throughout the movie, all throughout the party. 
There's something really fabulous for that. Um, you make popcorn in a cast iron skillet, quiche, pizza. Yeah, absolutely. There's uh, mac and cheese in there. There's lasagna. There's a chicken pot pie. I mean, it really covers everything from breakfast through to dinner and then to dessert. (laughs) And we'll get to dessert because that's my favorite subject. (laughs) Um, You and I share a love for the crispy rice at the bottom of the pot. In the Persian culture, oh, yes. See, I love that you say in a recipe there are those people that like the crispy bottom, and then you say there are others, and those are the people you don't completely understand. In the Persian culture, (laughs) right, it's called tadik. And there is something to be said for that caramelization at the bottom of the pan when you make a perfect batch of rice. So can you teach us how to simulate that in a cast iron skillet, please? Yeah, absolutely. There's there's a recipe in there in the book, and I think it has a lot to do with putting some uh, some butter at the bottom of the pan so that it gets uh, that rice at the bottom of the pan nice and crispy and maybe ever so slightly overdone um, so that it gets a little bit crispy and harder. But, of course, the rice on top of that stays really nicely done. And, and uh, it's, you know, it's like you said, I, I just, uh, I celebrate the people who celebrate that rice crust. <laughs> oh, the, the rice crust is everything. Do you use glass yeah. lids from other pots interchangeably from your cast iron? I noticed like in the popcorn recipe, you allude to the fact that you should and can put a lid on it to keep the kernels from popping everywhere. But a cast iron skillet, or many of them at least, are standard size. So if you're... Right. If you're braising or making popcorn, are you transferring a lid from another vessel? I have some lids that I, I borrow occasionally, um, but I also, you know, there, you can use uh, aluminum foil, it's sort of a makeshift lid, and just uh, set that on top of there and crimp it a tiny bit and, and you're, you're set. So you don't really need a lid, but if you have one lying around, you know, you can press it into service. Ultra impressive, for sure, um, as are all the recipes. I love your whimsical side. I love that you're applying... Uh, really classic techniques with new ideas to inspire us. Um, And I think that there's so much to do with a cast iron skillet and you are paving the way. So congratulations. Uh, A second cookbook. Thanks so much. Yeah, truly inspiring. From the author that, by the way, uh, has hunted ramen in Tokyo and tracked down ice cream in Buenos Aires. There is something to be said for his best-selling first book, Will It Waffle? And Everything You Can Make in a Waffle Iron. Now, just released, Will It Skillet? Irresistible and Unexpected Recipes to Make in a Cast Iron Skillet with Maximum Ease and Minimal Cleanup and Amazing Flavors. From author Daniel Shumsky, Will It Skillet is available now and you will find it worldwide. How can we follow you, Daniel, so that we know what your next culinary escapade is going to be? Uh, People can go to willitwaffle.com and that's the, the website that I have based on my first book and it also has information about Will It Skillet there. Willitwaffle.com is the best place to find me. Perfect. And when you will it next time, will you come back? I would love to talk to you anytime. Good. I would, thank you. I would love to have you. Congratulations once again. It's called Will It Skillet, and it is going to put your cast iron skillets to very good use. There is more delicious conversation and inspiration in your radio right after this. Chef Jamie Gwen, don't go away.
Welcome back. Chef Jamie Gwen in your radio, Feeding Your Soul. With all the diets, the fads, and confusion about what to eat and what not to eat, Dr. David Friedman is setting the record straight. His new number one national bestseller, Food Sanity, How to Eat in a World of Fads and Fiction, is a myth buster that sheds light on diets galore. Vegan, paleo, Mediterranean, gluten-free, low-carb diets. There is so much conflicting research. So what are we supposed to eat? Dr. David Friedman is a clinical nutritionist and chiropractic neurologist who received a postdoctorate certification from Harvard Medical School. He's also the health expert for Lifetime Television's morning show, along with the host of the nationally syndicated program, To Your Good Health Radio. And Dr. David Friedman is here to dish. I welcome you. Glad to have you, Dr. Friedman. Hey, glad to be here helping out <laughs> breaking up the culinary conundrum. Yes, and, and that's what it is when you list the diets and the fads. It even amazed me in preparing for you to come on the radio. There really is a, a, a lot of confusion out there. So let's dig in. If you could please uh, kick off the conversation by weighing paleo and vegetarian diet pros and cons. You call it meats versus beets. Right. And that was, uh, that's definitely, you know, there's fewer subjects raised more controversy in heat opinions and food politics. It's, it's really, you got your plant-based, you got your paleo debate. It's really like Republicans and Democrats. Yeah. It's that much of an opposition. And while the vegans and vegetarians believe a diet void of meat is the secret to optimal health and longevity, the proponents of the paleo diet say we got to eat meat like a caveman, like our ancestors did. Well, in food sanity, I share how that belief is based on a serious distortion of human history. You see, cavemen, they're portrayed as these big, strong, savage hunters able to stab and kill a mammoth-sized animal, carry their dead carcass over their shoulders. Well, that may be how the cartoons and the movies portray them, but it's far from the truth. Cavemen were actually short and stocky. In fact, they were not much taller than five feet tall. They weighed 171 pounds. The size of their body was an evolutionary adaptation to cold weather that's extra fat consolidated heat. Well, according to the National Institute of Health, that's considered clinically obese. Mm -hmm. So I ask you, how could a short, obese man run, have speed and the endurance to run fast enough to hunt, kill a mammoth, lion, and tiger, or bear? <laughs> They couldn't. See, cavemen were not the predator hunters they've been portrayed to be. In my book, I show evidence they were the hunted, not the hunters. They carried weapons for defense, and using forensic analysis, science has shown our caveman ancestors a primarily a plant-based diet. So where does that leave us when we make daily choices as to what to eat? Does that mean to you and to all of us that we should have more meatless Mondays? Well, you know, it's, it's, they always say, eat like a caveman. I say, who cares? Why would you want to eat like an anatole? And then the, <laughs> the vegetarians say, eat like a gorilla. You know, you see, why would you want to eat like an animal? I say, eat like your great-grandparents did. Back then, life was clean or food was we didn't have the hormones, the artificial sweeteners. Right. We slept better. So if you look at pictures of your great-grandma, you're going to notice something. She was thin. You see, back in the early 1900s and late 1800s, there was 3% overweight. That was it. Today you're looking at 70%. So mm. I always say don't blame your genes on why you can't fit into your genes. Yeah. If you want to eat like somebody, eat like your real ancestors, your great-grandparents. They were healthy. And that takes us then to a conversation about GMOs. I was fascinated to read in your book 
that the five-digit number on the barcode on the products that we buy, the packaged products, has a very simple indication as to the genetically modified components of that food and how we can know. You know, the European Union, as well as 64 countries worldwide, have restrictions on GMOs, but not so in the USA yet. 70% of the food sold at the grocery stores contain GMOs, and the two biggies are soybean and corn, which is found in a plethora of products. So labels aren't required to divulge, but you can play detective, and it's called the TLU code that stands for Price Lookup, and if you see the five-digit code that starts with an eight, it's GMO. Right. If it starts with a nine, it's organic. So an easy way to remember that is eight isn't great, but nine is fine. Nine is if fine. If you see a four-digit code without an eight or a nine, it's conventionally grown. So you can also look for non-GMO project label. If you see that, you're good to go. And USDA certified organic. So you've got little ways of playing detective, and we need to. We can't be so trusting anymore just to grab products and think they're good for us. We really need to start looking at labels. I have to agree with you, and I very much believe in that. I think we have to be our own advocates. We have to be knowledgeable. It's where uh, genius work like yours comes into play, where we can learn as much as we can and take with us what applies to our culinary lives. By the way, if you've just tuned in, you're late. Dr. David Friedman is here, and he is sharing... Uh, a good dose of food sanity from his number one national bestseller and his new release. What is the mercury fish farce, as you call it, Dr. Friedman? Because in my reading through your book, I was surprised to see the studies have revealed evidence that the mercury issues that we've been, you know, talked into, I suppose, are not as great a health concern as one would think. Yeah, and that was my biggest aha moment because I'm a big fish lover and I kept hearing all this mercury pollution and, and, and toxicity and I'm like, where did this come from? So I researched and, you know, so many people avoid fish because of this mercury scare and the truth is the oceans are not the mercury-laden cesspools we've been led to believe in food sanity. I debunked this popular mercury fish myth by exploring cultures around the world that eat fish daily, sometimes three times a day, and their blood tests show no mercury toxicity. They're the epitome of good health. Pregnant females, you know, what have we been told? Avoid certain types of fish because they supposedly contain mercury that can harm the unborn fetus. Well, there's no credible research to support this. In fact, evidence shows quite the opposite. Cultures where pregnant females eat primarily fish, and we're talking about tuna, have healthier children with higher IQ scores than mothers avoiding fish. You got to re- people need to realize mercury is a naturally occurring element found in the soil, air, water, food. We hear about the dangers of mercury in fish. Cattle has it. So do mushrooms. So do other crops in agriculture. High fructose corn syrup. No one seems to worry about these items, but fish has become, I call it, the red-headed stepchild of food. And here's why it's not a concern: mercury cannot cause harm unless it occurs in extremely high enough amounts to inhibit selenium-dependent enzymes, which protect the brain. So, in other words. If fish contains more selenium than mercury, it cancels out the mercury that's absorbed by the body. So in my book, I have a chart of 18 of the most commonly eaten fish. All of them, except for the mako shark, have more selenium than mercury. Okay, so play it safe. If you're out there at dinner and you see mako shark on the menu, don't (laughs) order it. But the other wild-caught fish are good for you and won't cause a mercury poisoning. Good. Enlightening. Thank you. Fish for dinner tonight, for sure. Um, Let's talk weight loss. Yes. Uh, Weight loss Uh plans. There has been no other time in history 
than today where you speak to the fact that we have more weight loss plans, but the obesity epidemic is getting worse. And there are two crucial missing elements that you share to achieving permanent weight loss. And by the way, we want to know. Yeah. One thing I want to share is I always get asked, hey, Dr. Freeman, which diet works? They're all confusing. My answer shocks them. They all work, whether it's eating for your blood type, Atkins, Paleo, Zone, Keto, Nutrisystem, or Weight Watchers. If you follow the program, you're going to experience weight loss. But unfortunately, as we all know, the results are usually just temporary. Mm-hmm. And one of the main reasons so many diets initially work is because they have one thing in common. They change a person's routine. They promote eating different foods, different ways at different times. And whether that's great fruits or steak three times a day or changing your portion sizes or going vegan, when you mix up your daily routine, you're going to alter your metabolism, mm-hmm. change your blood glucose levels, and you're going to lose weight. The problem is people don't keep it off. Right. So what I do is I look at the word diet and food sanity, and I say, what does the word diet mean? It comes from the Greek word diatia, which means way of living. That's the key to achieving permanent weight loss. So the big three you want to watch out for, you want to avoid white foods, which I talk about. Right. You want to avoid obesogens. These are chemicals in the food that actually cause us to gain weight, and studies show they actually increase our fat cells. And you want to get at least seven to eight hours of deep restorative sleep. If you're not snoozing, you're not losing. Those are the three. It's a tricycle. The diet plans have one wheel. The food, you have to have three wheels to accelerate that tricycle. If you want to mm-hmm. avoid obesogens, and get a good night's sleep, plus you want to eat right. I thank you, um, and kudos to you for all of the enlightened research that you've shared. We have seen you uh, on television shows across the country taking the world by storm. There is a lot to learn. Dr. David Friedman's book, Food Sanity, is an eye-opening examination of some of the most controversial nutrition topics. It's a crash course on health, and it is a must read. It's really extraordinary food for thought. So learn more at foodsanity.com and follow Dr. Friedman on social at healthradiodoc. Dr. Friedman, continued success to you and thank you for sharing your wealth of knowledge and your passion. My pleasure. Appreciate it. Thank you so much. As the delicious conversation continues, it is my goal to bring you the most enlightened discussion and inspiration and there's more fabulous food in your radio right after this Offering you wisdom from the pros every weekend. Chef Jamie Gwen in your radio. Jennifer Siegel is the chef and photographer behind Once Upon a Chef, a family-friendly, very much awarded recipe website and blog that features tested and perfected recipes with step-by-step photos. In her new book, much anticipated, entitled Once Upon a Chef, The Cookbook, Jen shares her recipes for scrumptious, craveable, everyday dishes that span the seasons. And I love the way she cooks. Once Upon A restaurant chef is really where Jen started and now allotted food blogger and super mom. Jen is here to cook and I'm glad to have you. Hi, Jen. Hi. Thanks for having me. (laughs) Yes, of course. Okay, before we get into the kitchen... 
Can we play five questions first, please? Sure. Okay, good. Spring has sprung. What is your favorite springtime produce to cook with? That one is easy. I love asparagus. Okay, and uh, grilled, steamed, roasted, crispy. Oh, gosh. All all the ways. All the ways. Um, Yeah, but I do love to throw it on the grill, and it's just so easy that way. I do, too. I'm balsamic, olive oil, uh, fresh herbs. And then best eaten with your fingers, I believe. Yes. Although, you know, I have a wonderful recipe on my website for grilled asparagus with feta and lemon zest and olive oil. And it's wonderful. Oh, nice. And I've been grating yes. um, grana padano. So um, oh, I'll move good. from Parmesan to feta. Thank you. Good inspiration. <laughs> uh, your most trusted kitchen appliance is? Well, the one that I use most often would have to be my garlic press because I hate having smelly garlic hands. <laughs> and so <laughs> that's, you know, it's the one that I probably use every day. Sure. And I love that it's still considered a throwback. I think it's an essential tool. And you know, everyone has one like in the back of the drawer. We just forgot about it. Totally. Yes. Okay. Uh, the third in five questions. Are you sea salt or kosher salt? I think I'm both. I tend to use kosher salt for seasoning meats. Yes. You know, because of the bigger plate, right. you can see it. Um, but I use sea salt in most of my recipes, okay, uh, especially so for baking and stuff like that. That's where professional chef meets home cook. I like to keep the kosher salt next to the stove. So before I put steaks on the skillet or chicken, you know, you can grab the kosher salt with your hands and really feel how much you're putting on. Yes. Yeah, I'm a kosher salt kind of girl. I think it's from our res- our restaurant days. Yes, you and I. Yeah. Um, what did you make for dinner last night? Last night, I made one of my favorite recipes from the book, which is a spaghetti with a kale and walnut pesto. Oh, nice. Yeah, super easy. You can throw it together in 20 minutes. And, you know, it's just sort of like a modern healthy twist on pesto pasta. Yes, and because the kale trend continues. I happen to love it. Exactly. And then question five, your hot sauce of choice. Probably sriracha. Okay. I'm still I'm still a sriracha lover, but I'm moving into gochujang. Ah, okay. Yeah, I think I think my palate's getting hotter. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Yeah, I know. I feel like my kids don't like spicy stuff, so I have to be cautious with that. Yes, of course. um, yeah. <laughs> but but still sriracha all the way. And so now we've gotten to better know uh, Jen Siegel, blogger and now cookbook author, as we share um, her first cookbook release, Once Upon a Chef, the Cookbook. Um, okay, let's get cooking. Because as I mentioned, I-, I love the way you cook, very similar to my own style. Uh, these are recipes that I want to invite friends over and sit around and talk and open another bottle of wine. And so sweet, salty, spicy pecans... You do yours with confectioner's sugar. Um, And that was enlightening to me. They're roasted, though, and not fried. Will you share the recipe, please? I discovered this method years ago. And I I don't know about you, but whenever I had done caramelized nuts or, you know, nuts like that to go on salads or to put in jars for gifts, a lot of the recipes call for egg whites, which, I don't know, it just is kind of a pain to work with and you know, something about they don't look all that pretty when the egg egg whites harden. Yeah, they're um, they're foamy and white yeah, colored and granular and yes. I love this method of using confectioner sugar and 
I'm not a food scientist. I don't know why it works. Um, <laughs> but it does. <laughs> yeah, it might something to do with the cornstarch and the confectioner's sugar, but yes. just by mixing um, the pecans with a little confectioner's sugar, a little water and salt it, and a little heat, um, it makes the most wonderful caramelized, crispy, crunchy glazed pecans. And they're wonderful on salads. They're wonderful to, you know, wrap in you know, and put in jars and wrap for the holidays. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's one of my go-to dishes. Yeah, I think they're wonderful as a snack with a cocktail. Just perfect. And I love that yeah. cayenne to offset the sweetness of the sugar. So you get a little sweet and a little heat uh, and then the salt. And there's nothing better than a, a really well-toasted pecan. So I'm I'm all in. Uh, yeah, and I like the pecan. I like using pecans better than other nuts. I don't know about you. I just don't ever think the other ones are as good. You're definitely inspiring us, and congratulations on the success of the blog, um, and more so uh, on the cookbook. It's really, a, it feels like a labor of love, um, and we're grateful that you're sharing more recipes from Once Upon a Chef, beloved blogger Jen Siegel. The book is now available. You can find inspiration at Once Upon a Chef, and you can be making sweet, spicy pecans and no-churn cheesecake ice cream in no time. Jen, it was a pleasure to have you. Thank you for sharing your passion. Thanks so much. And so that brings us to the end of another hour of scintillating conversation. If you're hungry for beautiful food and remarkable wines and juicy dialogue, well, then I hope you'll tune in every weekend. I'm always serving up seconds at chefjamie.com and I will post this next recipe, my last bite for the hour, on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Chef Jamie Gwen. I love edible Play-Doh. Maybe it's from my childhood when my mom used to make it uh, with peanut butter, but I'd like to say um, that I've elevated it in a sense. I have a recipe as tasty as it is simple to share with you, and it will delight the kid in everyone. It's an edible chocolate Play-Doh that you make simply by combining store-bought vanilla frosting with cocoa powder and powdered sugar, and you mix it up well. If it's too sticky, you add a little bit more powdered sugar. If it's on the crumbly side, you add a half a teaspoon of water at a time. But it's just so fun. I will post my edible chocolate Play-Doh recipe now for kids and adults alike. Once again on social at Chef Jamie Gwen. And I will meet you here next weekend for lots more fabulous food in your radio. I thank you for listening. I'm Chef Jamie Gwen signing off, and I hope you continue to eat well. 